Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is producer, composer, and educator David Campos. First of all, SoundCloud is really piling up the losses. Now, everybody loves SoundCloud, who wants to post their audio tracks very much like YouTube, but only for audio, and that's what it's been great for. DJs and indie artists, that's a wonderful place to put your tracks and then have people stream them. Now, you could either do it privately, which many artists do, or you can make it public. The only problem is, how do you make money from that? And that's the problem that SoundCloud has been running into. And they've been piling up losses. We've just seen that last year, they got about $100 million worth of losses. The good thing is, they turned around and got about $170 million in an investment but they still wound up cutting about 40% of the workforce. So what SoundCloud has been trying to do is mimic Spotify. And that means trying to get consumers interested. The only thing is, consumers already have Spotify, they already have Apple Music, they already have Tidal, they already have Deezer, with a lot more of the music that they want. Now, just because there's all this indie music that's sitting on SoundCloud, it doesn't necessarily mean that people actually want to listen to it. So therein lies the problem. Many are predicting that SoundCloud is going to go away. I don't know if that's the case, and I don't know if it's going to happen that soon, if it will happen at all. That being said, already artists are beginning to look out for other alternatives, one being Bandcamp, of course, and you get a lot of extra stuff around Bandcamp as well as the posting of your audio. Mixcloud is another one. Mixcloud was originally for DJs and probably still is mostly a DJ platform. That being said, there's a lot of podcasts on there. I have my podcast on there. And there's a lot of indie artists of all sorts of genres that are putting their music up there. There's also 8-tracks and, of course, YouTube. You can always put your music up on YouTube with just one title screen, and you basically have the same thing as SoundCloud. So if you're a SoundCloud user, you should just look around at the alternatives because you never know when you're going to need them. If you have any questions or comments, send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. Check out my Hitmakers Club for access to the Private Mixers Facebook group, monthly deconstructed hits, mixing workshop and Q&A webinars, and for a short time, access to my core training module bonus. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now, surprisingly enough, artificial intelligence is seeping into songwriting. Yeah, there's a lot of companies that are sprouting up around this, and actually there's a lot of investment money coming into it. So much so that now we're starting to see Wall Street pick up their ears, as well as major labels, and as well as all of the distribution platforms. This isn't a new thing. David Bowie actually used artificial intelligence during the writing of his Berlin Trilogy. That's the three albums that he wrote while he was in Berlin, Heroes, Low, and Lodger. David at the time used something called a verbicizer. And what happened there is he would input 25 sentences and the verbicizer would jumble them up to come up with some brand new sentences. And Bowie actually used that. So you can see that this goes back a while and it's also something that could be useful too. 
Today we have the Sony Computer Science Lab, we have the Spotify Creator Research Lab, we have Google Magenta and the Google Perform RN platform, we have independent companies like Splice and Amadeus Code and Amper and Popgun and Second Brain. There's all these companies that are dedicated to artificial intelligence in music, to machine learning in music. And some of it's coming out pretty good, actually. There's some on Spotify. There's some just about everywhere, and it's not half bad. So is this going to change the music business? I don't know. Is it for the better? Don't know either. But I'll tell you what, being a musician, I'm fairly suspicious of it. And again, if it's good enough for David Bowie, it's good enough maybe for me to check out as well. My guest this week is producer and composer David Campos, who was one of my first guests when I first started this podcast four years ago. He was originally on episode number six. David has produced gold and platinum albums, has won a Clio Award for one of his jingles, and composed music for MTV, SABC, and many, many more. His jingle clients have included Coca-Cola, Hyundai, Krups, McDonald's, Toyota, FIFA World Cup Soccer, and many others. He's also the creator of advancedmusicproduction.com, one of the biggest online music production education platforms on the internet today. In the following interview, we talked about how the jingle business has changed over the last four years and the differences in musicians, engineers, and producers around the world. So you won't want to miss this. We spoke via Skype from a studio outside of Johannesburg, South Africa. Tell me about the process of jingle writing the way it is today. Has it changed at all from when we last talked about this, and this was maybe four years ago? I think that jingle writing, like all forms of music production, is a constantly evolving thing. You know, uh, technology has really changed the way that people engage and interact, and by nature, that has changed the way that business is done when it comes to jingle writing. So that being said, is the process different, your approach different? Well, uh, I think uh, uh, in the early days, you know, before the digital revolution, it, there was a high barrier to entry, you know, to, to, be, to produce music. So the days of multi-track and massive consoles, you know, you needed millions of dollars to, to even get in the game. And there were very few jingle writers. So there were a handful of guys in each city that would produce jingles. So what happened was with the advent of computers and then uh, digital audio workstations, uh, you know, it got cheaper and cheaper. And with that, more and more guys started coming in. And <clears throat> what I'm seeing now is uh, competition has, I wouldn't say killed the industry, but it's it's made it a lot less lucrative than it, and exclusive than it used to be. Well, the way I've always heard it was, and, and I've never done any of this, but I have friends that have. And what they've told me almost from the beginning, as far back as I can remember, was that it was always a competition here anyway, where Coke or, or Pepsi or, you know, whatever the brand may be decides they want a commercial, that they want a, a jingle and they'll go to 10 agencies and say, okay, what do you have? So then the composers will write something on spec, so to speak, and see if they win. That's, that's look, that's right. Uh, and, and we used to call that a pitch. Uh, so what, what often would happen is you get multiple kinds of pitches. So uh, one pitch would be multiple agencies pitching for a client. That could be Coca-Cola or something like that. Sometimes what would happen is you'd have multiple production houses pitching for a job with one agency. Or you could get another situation where you get multiple composers pitching for a job to a production house or to an agency. So there's multiple kinds of 
scenarios that you can – and, yes, it's always been competitive. Yes, you are right. But I think it's it's got to the point now where, you know, 20, 30 years ago, you had to have a recording studio. You know, you wouldn't be taken seriously or be able to produce a decent product without it. So these days there's a lot of bedroom producers, guys literally in their bedrooms or in their lounges or whatever – and they're competing with the multi-million dollar studios. And to be honest, I was one of those guys. You know, I was a, a little bit ahead of the curve. So I was producing music completely on computers when other guys were still on, you know, on analog. And uh, there's been a lot of undercutting. I mean, I'll give an example. Let's say about 10 years ago, I, I, I would uh, do a jingle for maybe $10,000. And uh, these days, I got a call the other day. Agency said to me, oh, we want you to do uh, some music for this job. And uh, they said the, the budget is $3,000. And I was like, oh, $3,000, I don't know. And then she said, oh, oh yes, and you're up against five other guys. <laughs> and I was like, forget about it. I'm not interested. So, you know, the the hunger, this, it's supply demand. I think it's just too much supply of, of musicians. And then the, the other factor is um, licensing and library music has just gone crazy on the internet. There's so many options now. You can get subscription services. There's buyout. There's, uh, there's 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 composers that have their songs available that you can buy them anytime you like. So a lot of agencies are, are you know, and I, I think the same's happened with video. You know, these days, digital HD, 4K, whatever, you can do it so cheap. You can shoot really good quality video. So you know, in the old days, we were shooting on uh, I think it was 35 mil film. And we had multi-track, you know, analog studios. You can imagine the budgets were millions. And, and so everything was relative. So if, if let's say a, a high-end uh, advertisement costs, let's say it costs like uh, $1 million, then you could get away with a music budget of, you know, $50,000. You could you could fund, you know, if you could get an orchestra maybe, you get some, you could even go up to $100,000. Uh, some guys even got higher than that. So, um but these days, you know, the video is getting shot for like $20,000. So the music's going to be two, $3,000. So, yeah, it's it's more competitive. And uh, and the quality, it's so easy to make great music these days. Um, it's also difficult to stand out from the crowd. You know, in the old days, you really had to know what you were doing to make great music. And uh, I think it's changed a lot. It really has changed a lot. Yeah, but that being said, there's still an element of expertise that goes into this. And the thing about it is it's multiple disciplines because once upon a time you were working with the team. So you had an engineer and you had a, a mixer. You had a group of people that, that were experts in what they did. So that you had a collectively really great product. And now if you're a lone wolf, you have to be really good at all those things in order to compete. It's hard to be good at everything. That's right. And that's exactly what I went through. Uh, you know, for me, I always saw it as a budget thing, you know, like if I could record the voiceover and mix it myself and keep that extra, you know, money, then I would do that. So that's what made me me learn to do all those things. But you're right, that is kind of becoming the norm now. And it was normal in the olden days to just send the music to another facility where they'd record the voice and that would be sent to another facility where they'd do the final mix. And uh, that is changing yeah. Well, even the final mix is being done by video editors sometimes. <laughs> yeah, on uh, Final Cut Pro. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, which is bad because they're the least qualified for it. Although I, I must say, 
that what I found is really good video editors are usually musicians. They understand how to cut to the beat and they understand rhythm better. I've, I've had the same experience. Uh, in fact, I've had editors explain to me about tempo in editing. So I didn't even realize that that was a thing, but you, you're totally right about that. Yeah. You deal with musicians from all over the world. Do you see a trend and especially a trend in different parts of the world? Do you see a, something happening in one part of the world or an interest that's bubbling under in one part of the world that isn't in another part? In, in what sense? Well, let's just talk about genres of music for a second, because I know that one of the things that as a jingle composer, you have to deal with multiple genres. That's right. So that being said, is that more difficult for musicians in certain parts of the world? Well, one thing I've noticed, uh, you know, my, I found that being a jingle writer really made me a, a good producer uh, because you quickly realize that all styles of music really share the same universal basic uh, fundamentals, you know, and you start to notice, you know, like uh, I heard Raga dancehall track, I'm producing a Raga dancehall track one day and the next day they pass me this Portuguese folk song and I've noticed they got the same beat, mm. exact same beat, only difference the one's played on a live drum kit, the other one's programmed on a drum machine. You start to pick up these patterns. You start to notice that, uh, and I've noticed that when I also speak to other jingle writers, we have this kind of connection. We understand that all, so if I hear Bhangra from India or if I hear, you know, house music from uh, Europe or whatever, there's this kind of these underlying universal principles. And I think if you, if you look at music in a, in a general universal kind of way, there's no curveballs. Like for me, I wouldn't be scared of any style of music, but work, I worked in jingles for 20 years. So for me, I often had a scenario where I'd be given this piece of music uh, like now, let's say three o'clock in the afternoon, and then I had to have a piece of music by nine o'clock the next morning. And uh, there's no, if you don't deliver, that's it. You're finished. <laughs> you know, you'll lose a ton of work. But I think that limitation is actually a good one. There's no second thought to it. It's whatever the initial inspiration is that you have to follow. I had a, a, a guy on a podcast um, maybe about a month ago, Clarence J. He also was a composer, but he made some headroads into American television. So he moved here to California, and he started a service that was basically music for hire. And for whatever it was, three $4,000 they would do a song and a video, and they would turn out one a day, both the video and the song, completely finished. And, and these guys were good. And what ended up happening was they got one of the biggest viral hits ever, it was a song called Friday, that was huge here for half a second. But it was the, okay. the fastest song on YouTube to hit 100 million. You know, so th this is going back five or six years. But the fact of the matter is, they had to write and produce and complete a song a day and a video. Yeah, that's normal. I mean, I can tell you my experience um, uh, at my, my biggest year, I think I produced 300 jingles and about 50 album tracks in one calendar year. That's almost a complete song a day. And the jingles are even harder than the album tracks because, like, if you're doing hip hop, Let's say I'm going to do 12 hip-hop tracks. It's like once you get a sense of what the style is and what the genre is, like all the tracks are going to be between like 90 and 95 BPM. They're all going to have samples. They're all going to have strong bass drums. You know, it's like you get your head in there and you just get cracking. Now, the jingles, it's like 
you never know what the hell you're going to be working on the next day. Like I'm trying to find someone who can play didgeridoo. Then I'm trying to find someone who can play like, uh, you know, bluegrass. You know, it's like and try and find someone who can play bluegrass in South Africa and be a challenge, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> so it's so, so those are the type of challenges we had. But it does. It makes you really, really good. And I found that the guys just get stuck in. I, I've got no concept of writer's block. I can tell you now. I'll write a piece of music in, in 30 minutes, no problem, any style of music. Because when you train yourself to think in, in just like steps, you know, what is the drum beat? What are the sounds we're using? What is the bass gonna, pattern going to be? What sound is it going to be? You know, and you just keep moving forward, keep moving forward. And there's no time uh, to, to feel emotions and inspiration. It's a business. Okay. So when you get a lead on a jingle pitch, is there a temp track or they say we want something like this? They usually call it a brief. Yeah. 99% of the time there's a brief, uh, which is, which is a, a guard track. And the guide track, usually, uh, we call it demo-itis. So demo-itis is when the client becomes, like, attached to a track. So often what happens is, and often the music is, like, the last thing they think of. So they'll, like, edit. They'll go and shoot a video. They'll edit it, and they'll spend weeks and months on this thing. And they, they got used to some, you know, expensive, you know, number one hit off the radio. And now suddenly they realize they can't use that piece of music. So they come to a guy like me and say, quick, we need something that sounds like this. Uh, sound, creating sound alikes is actually a huge part of jingle writing. It, it's a, it's not a small part; it's a massive part. You know, because I think what it is they're really looking for is emotion. You know, they find the right song that matches the product, the brand, the visuals. And they want something that sounds like and gives you the same feeling, and that in itself is a skill as well. Yeah, so, so yeah, sound alikes are—it's a huge um, part of of writing jingles and. Uh, Something that I found last. Oh yeah, we were talking about guide tracks. Yeah. Yes. So so uh, yes. And uh, well, what I when I was when I was new in the business, sometimes I wouldn't get a guide track. They'd say something like, you know, we want something that's chilled out and <laughs> relaxed. And you know, the guy in his head, maybe he's from the sixties. He's thinking of like Led Zeppelin, Stairway to Heaven. <laughs> and I'm from the nineties. I'm thinking of like ambient, chill out music from London. You know, it's like we we're, not, we're using language that means completely different things to each other. So I quickly realized that I eventually reached a, a point where I had a policy, you know, just a personal policy where I would not do anything without something to listen to. I'd be like, please play me a piece of music that describes what chilled out and relaxed means to you, you know. Or, so I would never write music without a, a guide. And I found that when I tried to do that without the guide, eight out of ten times I would bomb. They would reject the track. So that – you know, this is a little trick you learn when you're writing jingles. You, you, you try and give them what they want. You know, it's interesting what you say, though, about sound-alikes. I always thought that one of the best things for me as a producer was growing up and playing in copy bands mm. because you have to analyze what's going on. And, and I was always the guy that would figure out the arrangements as well for everybody in the band. You play this, you play that. So it gives you a really good basis of how records are made. Yeah. Now, it's one thing to copy them and play it on stage where there's a lot of looseness involved, but when you have to right. copy them and then re-record them, that's even better because then you're getting into the nitty-gritty of what they sound like in the studio and what the effects are yeah. and, and, and how everything is placed and, and you know how, how it all works together. As you say, it makes you a better producer doing that. Also, what you'll notice is how... Subtle things can make such huge differences. So, for example, uh, like 
let's say you're trying to co copy a song and you can't seem to find the right snare drum, using the wrong kind of snare drum will just change the feeling of the song so much. You don't think that it would, but it does. So you could spend hours and hours trying to find the same snare drum or a close a snare drum that gives the same feeling as that, that or, or a, it could be a crash cymbal or, or a pad or whatever sound it is, even a guitar. So it teaches you that subtlety in um, your sound selection or, or, or the chord structures or whatever it is. Those subtleties can make a huge difference to the motion of the song because that's what we're trying to copy is the feeling of that song. So it's not good if it sort of sounds the same. It has to really get the exact feeling. Yeah. I can remember recording a few jingles in my early days, but this was back in the days of strict union schedules. And the first hour, the musicians came in and they had the music, they read it down. Usually in 20 minutes, they were done. Yeah. And then the second hour was all the vocalists. That took a little longer, but the third hour was for mixing. So <laughs> it, it was really strict and it was really yeah. fun because it was completely under the gun because there was only so much time. So there's lots of pressure to get it right. So if something wasn't working, you had to forget about it and find a workaround without anybody knowing or even thinking about it. Yeah. I'm sure things are still like that in certain places, but it's probably not yeah. the same anymore because again, these are high budget because you're bringing union guys in and this was in New York. So it was a little different. Look, I, I think uh, also you've got to realize that uh, there's, there's so many levels of advertising and junior writing. Because, for example, you, you can get like a small town that has a local radio station and they need jingles for the, the local hardware store. So, you know, there, there's a market for those like little jingles and the budgets are going to be like $500 or something. And uh, in that scenario, you, you know, I'm sure it's a lot more laid back. You know, you probably find I, I was never really in that level. I was more in the high end. But um, you'll find that you just give them a nice little happy song about the hardware store and boom, everyone's happy. Bob's your uncle and you get $500. So, that's a totally different environment, say, if you're composing the next uh, McDonald's uh, track or something like that. And, you know, I've had some of those, you know, I've, I've seen some of those Mickey Mouse type jingles and versus the really high-end ones. So now there's a lot of dynamics in the different levels uh, that changes the way the flow of writing music, like, runs. Coming back to the different musicians that you deal with, because of your business, because of your courses, which are fantastic, by the way. Oh, thank you. You deal with a lot of different musicians from all over the world. What is the one commonality between them? <laughs> I think we're we're like a tribe, you know. Uh, it's funny because even though you might be spending a guy in Turkey or in Africa or you know Asia or the States, somehow we just resonate. We we understand each other in a in a way. I think that musicians are passionate people. Musicians are emotional people. So, yeah, it's, and it's always, it's always difficult interfacing emotions and creativity with business and money and deadlines and things like that. But, yeah, it's, uh, I find, obviously, I'm a musician and I love musicians. I find them, I think, some of the most amazing people in the world. And quirky. And you know what else? Yeah, definitely eccentric. <laughs> and I also, I also find with musicians, like, I, I mean, if I could meet up with a musician in a, from a foreign country, I mean, we'll, we'll be friends in five minutes. You know, we're talking and joking along, you know, so there is something about musicians. We do have, we share like a common culture. Yeah, yeah, definitely. In your courses, 
you show people how to write. There's some jingle writing involved in that, but there's mostly production because you're coming from a space with your producer hat on. Right. So that being said, you're always analyzing music. What are the trends in music that you see right now? You know, it's a tough one because I don't want to sound like one of these old guys that says, oh, the music was better when we were younger. You know, I don't want to be one of those guys because I always hated that when I was in my 20s and some 50-year-old tells me, oh, the, the Beatles were the best or Led Zeppelin or whatever. So, uh, you know, I think what we've lost in modern music is the variety of styles and instruments, for example. Like you don't hear hops and banjos and didgeridoos and guitars in modern music anymore. They just, they like, they're dying. These days, most sounds you're hearing on most modern music is synthesizers, digital sounds. And I think the reason for that is, you know, most modern producers, they open up Ableton or, or Logic or whatever, and uh, they start tinkering around. And the first thing they go to are the virtual instruments, and they just start playing with synthesized sounds, you know. So they don't understand that a harp, for example, it comes from an orchestra, you know, that a harpsichord is the pre predecessor of the piano that the you know that there's live drums and there's electronic drums and that there's synth bass and there's double bass and then there's electric bass you know they don't understand the depth of instruments that we have at our disposal so it's like a palette you think all these instruments are like palettes to paint with it's like a lot of modern music are selecting from a very narrow field of sounds and uh, for me that's where we're losing but on the other hand there's a lot of creativity in modern music that is blowing my mind in the sense that a lot of young people are breaking all the rules. I mean, one of the things is song structure. Song structure has been the same for decades. I mean, almost for 100 years, we've had the same song structure. And I've started to hear songs that are charting now that are breaking those rules. And uh, I mean, not completely, but they're pushing the boundaries, you know. Another one, I mean, like, for example, a lot of modern songs don't have drum fills leading to a crash cymbal on the one into the chorus. That was standard practice on every style of music ever. It's almost non-existent. If you go and take the top 10 iTunes now, there's no such thing as a crash cymbal on, on, into the chorus. Probably no drum fill. Uh, so, you know, they're pushing the envelope and the boundaries and they're saying, do we really need this? Do we really need this song? Probably a lot of it's out of ignorance. You know, a lot of the young guys don't actually know that that's how we solved those problems. That's how we built up to that next section. Or so they found other solutions. And so I'm hearing new ideas all the time. And that's another thing that I'm noticing a trend is, okay, I think music became very electronic over the last 20 years, especially with EDM and pop. But uh, what I'm starting to hear now is, there's a lot of roughness starting to come back into music. Uh, stuff out of key, stuff out of time. Obviously, auto-tune is dying. Uh, vocals are not so, so processed anymore. Uh, yes, they can still sound modern. The music sounds modern. It sounds digital. It sounds. It does sound electronic, but it's it's not sounding like uh, German umpa music anymore. It's, it's not sounding like, like, you know, nursery rhymes. It's not sounding like... Uh, you know, really elementary anymore. It's starting to get depth to it. So it's depth in a, in a new way. And I really like that. Like I find that, uh, you know, I think human beings are, are very creative and human beings will always find a new, and every generation has to find a way to reinvent themselves, just to take what they can from the past and reinvent themselves. So that's what I'm seeing good in uh, modern music. And I'm, I'm excited about that. 
you know, it's funny you should talk about the form because what I've noticed is there are very few intros to songs. Some songs can start with the chorus, and that was unheard of. Mm. And almost every song these days, remember, we, we always had fade-outs forever. You know, it was right. kind of a standard, well, we'll just fade out. And now they're all hard endings. Yes. Some of them which work really well, and some of them don't. But it doesn't matter. It's the trend, and, and it definitely works. The other thing I noticed is there are many songs with no bridge. And the bridge was the peak of the song at one point in time, and, yeah. and it's not. But that being said, they find other ways to get that peak, right. to get to that ebb and flow in the song. So you're right. It's really interesting how it works today. Uh, I do deconstructed hits for people in my Hitmakers Club once a month, and it's always by request. So if someone wants something from 1960, you know, we'll look at that. But if they want something that was just on the track last week by Ed Sheeran, yeah, we'll, we'll listen to that yeah. too. So it's always fun to go in and deconstruct it. And then the next week, there's something, again, from 1960. So you can see right away, well, that's way yeah. different. <laughs> the way that's done, you know. Or And the other trend I've noticed is things are going a lot faster as well, where the big trend is let's get a song out right now. Let's not spend a lot of time on it. Like Ed Sheeran, I think on all of his songs, they're done in a day or two, and, and that's the mix, everything. Healthy, I think, that's a good way to go. Yeah, look, I think I think also there's multiple layers of, of music trends happening at the same time. So there, there is deep, complex music being made now that is, you know, honed and crafted over many, many months and years. So that, that, that exists. Um, but maybe the pop music, like you said, a lot of it is uh, is driven. Look, computers makes, makes, lives easy, makes our lives easier. So you can create high-quality music in a matter of minutes, especially when you have the knowledge. If you know, okay, this chord structure with that sound, with his voice singing that melody, and we've got the mic set up, and we'll write a beat and boom. Especially like if you take that body, you know, what that song by Ed Sheeran, uh, I Love Your Body or whatever. I mean, there's three sounds in there. There's like a kalimba, a bass sound. There's hardly anything in there. So, I mean, what makes that song work is the melody plus those chords and the rhythm of the chords being played. So... It's done. It's like when they found that combination, they were done. Uh, yeah. But um, yeah, I think they like again. There's multiple levels of of uh, directions that's happening in the world at the moment. There are, there is some really deep music. I mean, another one is like there was a time that I thought that sort of emotional kind of R and B was dying. They, they were calling music R and B, but I was listening to it and going like, "Where's the chords and the melodies?" And it just sounds it sounds like hip hop with like vocals on top. And now I'm listening to, I'm hearing guys like Daniel Caesar and uh, who's this guy, Moss, Ken Moss or whatever. And I'm like, wow, this is R&B, but 2018. It's got digital, yeah. electronic, modern sound, but there's melody, there's chord structures, there's emotion, there's crying, there's celebration. That, that was missing from, say, R&B, say, 10 years ago. So it's, it's like sometimes, I also think that there's a pendulum effect. It's kind of like the American presidents, you know. It's like you have a clown like uh, Bush, and then you get an amazing statesman like Obama, and you go right back to another clown like uh, you know Donald Trump, and uh, and I love all of those guys by the way, and I'm not American, so it's not I have no opinion, but uh, I think the same thing happens in, in with music, you know, it's like music gets very cheesy, then it kind of gets very serious, then it gets very complicated, then it gets very simple, you know, then it gets very melodic, then it gets very uh, like. Um, you know, rhythmic. So it's like, uh, I think that that's kind of the beauty. I think people get bored. 
of the same thing all the time. So we got to, as producers, always be looking at what's going on and saying, hold on, is this like, like I could feel it a few, three, four years ago, the David Greta EDM sound was starting to really drive me mad. I was going like, Sherbet, if I hear another one of these like nursery rhyme EDM type songs I'm going with, the, with the riser going into the chorus, I can't take it. It's like, it was brilliant the first time I heard it. After five years, I had enough. And that means everybody feels that way. You know, so uh, yeah. so I think that's that's the beauty. Speaking about as a producer, you know, like I love that analyzing what's going on with music uh, in the charts and the trends, and, uh, and and where I see the future going, which is a whole other subject, is internet, like internet-based independent artists are starting to take over. And I don't know if you know, like an artist called Chance the Rapper. So Chance the Rapper. He's probably the biggest independent internet artist, totally unsigned. He's, uh, he's a multimillionaire, hugely successful. He's getting streamed to death, and uh, he refuses to sign to a record label. And if you, if you listen to his music, when I listened to his music, I was absolutely gobsmacked because he's like a religious born-again Christian. At the same time, he speaks about taking drugs. He's got like, like uh, Kirk Franklin-style gospel influences, but then he's got deep street hip-hop in there it's like this amount it's like this combination of like the weirdest combination of music you ever heard in your life now if a record company A&R guy heard this demo he would have never signed him he would have said you can't swear in gospel music for example but that's what Charles Rapper has done he literally swears in his gospel song because and what's starting to happen I think is with the 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 internet and, and the internet becoming the real driving force of music is I think there's space for so many styles of music now and so many new interpretations of what music should sound like. And I think Charles the Rapper is giving us a, just a glimpse of where we're going to be in five or 10 years where there's going to be such huge diversity. I think what pop has done and the charts and radio in the past is it's narrowed styles down to just five or 10 artists or, or, or three or four styles and I think that's going to start to diffuse and disappear now. And I think we're going to start to see, I think music is going to become more artistic, which I think is exciting. Well, keep our fingers crossed on that one. <laughs> <laughs> Do you see any trends in gear? We've gone from analog multi-track outboard gear to everything in the box, digital. And then there was another trend to, uh, you know, creating virtual plugins of like, SSLs and every you know Abby's like re reverb of the of the, of their booths and tape simulations and things like that. So that that was quite big the last ten years, uh, and I think there's just this almost like this chaos right now. It's like there's so many schools of thought at the moment. Like some guys are just using out of the box sounds. Other guys are, are, are insisting on tons of third party plugins. Um, some guys are still fighting with outboard gear, you know, buying Nord synths and plugging them into their, you know, plugging them. Then there's outboard, there's summing, audio summing. There's like a whole bunch of guys that are insisting that you have to sum. Uh, so it just seems to me, I don't know, it seems to me like when I look at the trend right now, it just seems like there's multiple schools of thought at the same time. And, you know, my view is it doesn't matter what you do. What matters is how does it sound at the end of the day? You know, I think it's like art. 
you know, if a sculptor wants to get a Coke can and sculpt with a Coke can and it looks great, then fine. You know, if another guy wants to get a hammer and a chisel and he wants to use it, that's fine. What matters is the art. Does it, does it work? Does it make you feel something? If the answer is yes, great. I mean, the loudness war is starting to become less of an issue now. So that that's opened up also more doors because artists can just create great music and not worry too much about is it loud enough? Is it bright enough? Well, let me ask you a question. So you just built a new house and you put a new studio into it. Yeah. Did the studio change from your old one? Did you put different gear in? Was, was there a different thought about how you'd put it together? Or was it basically the same thing? For a start, uh, every studio I build is a little bit smaller than the one before. So that's, that's the first <laughs> thing. Um, and, and I prefer it. The, the, the second thing is my soundproofing uh, and my sound treating has got simpler and simpler. You know, I mean, my first studio, every we had double walls, super insulated with suspended floors and, you know, all of that. And uh, now my latest studio, I literally have like corner, these corner uh, um, absorber-based uh, traps in the corners. I've got a couple of absorber panels on the walls. And uh, I'm like, I really got it down to the bare minimum. Uh, and also the decorating, like my studio, you can see the couch behind me. It's comfortable. It's it's It feels more like a, a lounge or a room than it does like a studio. And I think most music is made in bedrooms and lounges these days. You know, that's, yeah. I, I'm shocked to see like great artists, great producers now. And they, you know, you see them on YouTube making a track and you expect to see them in, in some Hollywood studio. And no, they're in their lounge and they're in the corner and they got total wrong uh, soundproofing. Wrong. You can see that everything's not right. And, uh, but the music coming out is amazing. Oh, they're probably saying it off to be mixed somewhere else anyway. So that's fine. You know, they'll all get fixed there. So um, they're just worried. I think the artists are being more creative and not worrying too much about the gear and the, the soundproofing and the, and the studio. So, yeah, with me, my studio, my studio has never been similar to today. I have a, an audio interface, pair of speakers, computer. I've got a MIDI keyboard and I've got a condenser microphone. And that's it. I've got a ton of software, you know. And, and software, when I say software, mostly sounds. As a producer, that that's what I love. I love libraries yeah. and sounds. So that's what inspires me. So that's it. Yeah, no upward gear, nothing. I don't even have a separate mic. I use the mic preamp in my audio interface. So uh, to me, it sounds fine. I always thought that there was a fallacy about having a great studio or needing a great studio, needing great acoustics. And of course, it's really nice when you have it. There's no question yeah. that it, it certainly helps. But it all comes down to what you can get used to. Because if you know what something sounds like, if you know what the deficiencies are, then after a while, your ear automatically accommodates for that. So it works out anyway. But you have to be smart enough to understand there are problems and know how to work around them. But, but you're only talking about mixing and mastering now. Because if you think about it, music creation, that's just the last 10% or 20%. You know, 80% yeah. of it is just having fun, creating nice combinations of sounds and melodies and chord structures so to me you can outsource that that's an option or uh, or you can figure out how to get a good mix in your room like you said you get used to your room uh, I mean me personally uh, I would say yes my room is not as great as say my very first studio that I spent a ton of money building but I do know where the problems are I know there's an you know an area in the base area that I need to watch out for but also I use a spectrum analyzer um, I use a 
I've got like methods for side chaining and, you know, controlling the, fre- the base and the frequencies and all that stuff. So like I, I've, I've created a system that works for me and I'm sure a lot of guys are the same way that you find a way to get a good mix somehow with the gear you got and that's fine. You yeah. know, at the end yeah. of the day, it comes down to the song. Let's talk about your courses before I let you go here. Advanced music production is a, a wonderful, I can't call it course because it's a number of courses all put together. What's the latest one that you have now? Uh, we've just, we almost finished music business at the moment. And uh, we, we started right at the beginning in 1900. In fact, we started, we started with the Greeks actually, the Greek empire. But anyway, we went right to the first uh, uh, record contract in the 1910s, the early record companies, right to the fall of the record companies in the, in the 2000s and the rise of digital music. And uh, now we're looking into the, the future, the internet, the internet being our market for music. And I've never been more excited. And something that I, you know, what I found about teaching that's kind of helped me a lot. It's helped me as a producer doing these courses made me a better producer because what it's done is it's, it's forced me to evaluate what I know because when you're working all the time, you kind of subconsciously build up these rules in your head and these systems and uh, ways of solving problems, but you don't actually know what they are. You couldn't write them down on a piece of paper. So when you're teaching, it's like suddenly you're forced to, you know, identify what is that thing that I do that solves that problem. And then you write it down and then suddenly you actually see, wait, I can do that even better, you know? And the other thing is before I teach anything, I always Google the subject, see what other people are saying, you know, and just see, is there, is there a hole somewhere in my information, in my logic? So as I've been going through from building a studio to composition, to programming, to recording, to mixing, mastering in our music business, I've been kind of like looking at myself and saying, what do I know? What have I learned? And then also, what don't I know? What can I still learn? And uh, that process has been enriching for me uh, also to teach people in itself is a very fulfilling exercise well you got a lot of students again all over the world that really look up to you for what you've been doing and your courses are great i have to say that there's a lot of thought behind them and there's a lot of information huge amount of information actually what i'd like to do next because i think what i've done is i've got about 13 courses now and like we cover the fundamentals uh you know like i said uh, compositions acoustics programming mixing watching and now business but what i'd like to do is start to sort of dive deeper now for example sound design sound design is 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 like it's a specialized thing Uh, a lot of jingle writers will do sound design a lot of sound designers will do jingles but actually they're not the same skill and uh i've worked on projects where they made me write music and then i wanted to do the sound design they were like no 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 the sound designer is going to do the sound design because it is a specialized thing you know i saw the guy who made the sound effects for the iphone you know, when the, when, the email, when the email goes, it goes swish. And when you close it, it goes click. And, uh, you know, I, I saw him explaining his mind process, his thought process, how he found those sounds. And it was just like a whole other world. And I realized, yes, okay, I, I am experiencing sound design. I mean, um, try and make, if somebody, you try and make the sound of an earthquake. I mean, how do you do that? <laughs> For example, yeah. you have to figure that out, you know, so, um, even jingle writing, like you said, is a pretty specialized set of skills. I think internet marketing of music now is going to be the next, it's going to be something big. And I'm seeing lots of new ideas starting to come around. Um, I think there's, there's still so much to chew on. There's so much information. Um, 
So I'm really excited about the future with AMP because I love learning and I love teaching. So uh, I can see lots of opportunities. Another thing I've learned is, uh, you know, what I've been doing more lately is creating a community because before it was a lot like top heavy. I'd be teaching down to my students. Now what I'm starting to do is create a community and then uh, talk to my students and then let them kind of guide me and show me where I need to teach more because uh, I find that that's actually so that's actually much more powerful than trying to you know tell people what they should learn. Let them tell you what they want to learn, and uh, yeah. I find that to to be also great for me. I'm learning with them, you know. So I'm really yeah. just I'm like the guide. I'm like great at finding the information. I already have a good sense of how it all works, but now I'm I'm like. They're saying, take us in that direction and I'm leading them there, you know, so I love that. Last question, David. What's the best piece of business advice that either somebody imparted to you or maybe you learned along the way? I would say persistence is the key to success in everything in life because, you know, I used to think it was like secret knowledge and then I used to think, no, no, it's genius IQ or talent you know, then I used to think, no, it's networking. You have to have the right, know the right people. And all those things are important. But what I've found is in my life, persistence is the key because failing is a part of life. My first hundred songs never saw the light of day. They're sitting on a dad tape, a couple of dad tapes, if you remember what dad tapes are. And I have uh, a stack of them, yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> 48 kilos. And uh, yeah, and uh, uh I've found, you know, I've done so many things. I've been successful writing jingles, successful making music for film. I've uh, produced albums, sold 1.5 million records. I've uh, I've created my own music publishing company, my own uh, record label, my own rec- fully. F- we did our own distribution as well in a record company. And since then, I've created an internet business. Uh, I've got millions of views on my YouTube channel. I've got thousands of students in my thing. Every one of those things I've been successful in and every one of them have been an absolute uphill struggle with problem after problem after problem after problem. So you've got to learn to be tough. You've got to just push through. You know, if you, to me, it makes no difference if I'm trying to solve a code problem or if I'm trying to solve uh, like a PayPal problem on my internet site. It's all about pushing through those challenges. And, and um, you know, there's the saying, separate the men from the boys. Every time you have a problem, when you overcome that problem, just think of all the guys on the side of you that you're competing with that didn't overcome that problem. That's where they get left behind, and that's where you push forward. So, you know, I believe that persistence, grittability is the key thing for anything in life, and especially in music. And one thing I can say, all the successful people I know in the music business, artists, producers, they've all got that trait. Even musicians, to be a great musician, it's it's persistence. They're all tough people, and uh, the weak people, you know, the lazy people, the people who feel sorry for themselves, they fall by the wayside and they don't make it. You can find out more about David at davidcampos.info. That's David Campos, D-A-V-D-I-D-C-A-M-P-O-S, all one word, dot info. And you can find out about his advanced music production courses at advancedmusicproduction.com. That's all one word, advancedmusicproduction.com. 
com. Thanks for listening and being my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, and Google Play. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.